Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and with me by Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies, my co-host. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, well I've been looking forward to this for quite a long time, Tim. Uh, we, we have someone here to talk about hummingbirds, one of my favorite beasts. Yay! And, and <laughs> so we have uh, Dr. Anusha Shankar. She's a postdoctor doctoral research uh, associate with the Cornell Laboratory of uh, Ornithology. So welcome, uh, Anusha. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. We usually uh, start our programs by asking our guests to uh, talk about, you know, how they got interested in ecology and maybe there's something that happened in their childhood that uh, got them going on lo love of nature. And uh, maybe you've got a unique story to tell. So I, yeah, I don't know how unique it is, but I grew up in a in a city, a pretty crowded city in India called Chennai. Its population is now at about eight million, I think. Um, and I spent a lot of time. My parents moved between countries. I think I went to ten different schools in different cities growing up, but a lot of that was in Chennai. Um, and I thought that I wanted to be a psychologist or a theater artist or a pilot. Like there were so many things in the 10th grade that I thought I wanted to be. Um, and my parents kind of told me I had to choose one. So uh, I ended up doing biology in, in high school in the 11th and 12th grades when you have to choose a track to, to go on. Um, and then for college, I, I didn't end up getting into med school because in India, you go straight from high school to med school if you want to do med school. Um, mm. And so I didn't clear the qualifying exams at that stage. And so I ended up doing a bachelor's degree in zoology and started interning. And did, I did like a six week internship in the northeast of India with a wildlife rehabilitation center where they were rehabilitating a hulak gibbon, which is a primate that you find in, in, um, in, in southern and southeastern Asia. So uh, this female was being rehabilitated to the wild and I was I was living in the field very far away from home in a state that people didn't speak my language. I didn't speak their language. Um, cooking my own food for the first time, living far away from my family for the first time. It was a very difficult experience in many ways, but somehow I kept wanting more. And so I kept doing stuff like that. Um, and I tracked king cobras for one internship and I uh, studied insects. And I studied snake? The snake, king cobra? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, that was a cool project. I saw one, uh, a king cobra like swallowing a rat snake. It was a, mm. let me think, 11 foot long king cobra eating a seven foot long rat snake. Um, it took about 45 <laughs> minutes. It was a fascinating thing to see. Yeah, so I kept doing stuff like that. And then I did a PhD at Stony Brook in New York after my master's in India. Um, and that's when I started studying hummingbirds. Yeah, you don't get a chance to study hummingbirds in India, right? No, um, hummingbirds are only found in North and South America. Yeah, I'm talking uh, this morning from Hawaii. We don't have any over here. There's a moth on the big island that, that that's called a hummingbird moth, but uh, it's an in, it's an invertebrate. <laughs> There are, there are hummingbird hawk moths in the U.S. and in India, but not hummingbirds in India, yeah. Yeah, an interesting kind of convergent 
evolution. Yeah. We'll talk a little about hummingbirds themselves then. Let's just introduce the topic because that's your specialty uh, of research right now, right? Um, give us a little thumbnail of their life history and uh, we already mentioned that they're confined to the Americas, North and South America exclusively. Uh, and that's probably because they can't really fly across the ocean, right? They can do it. It's thought that the ancestor of the hummingbird was in Europe, in Germany. There seem to be some ancestral hummingbird fossil kind of thing, the deposits that have been found in Germany. So the idea is that the, I, I'm diverging from your main question, but the, the historical evolutionary hypothesis right now is that they originated, their ancestor originated in Germany, and then they uh, somehow got across to North America, migrated down to South America, went extinct everywhere else. And then with the uplift of the Andes, they really diversified upwards and hugely into the hundreds. And then some of them moved back up into North America for at least for the breeding part of the year. So yeah, they do have a very, I don't know, they might've, their ancestors might've crossed that ocean at some point. Um, but they're interesting because they're, the smallest birds, like the smallest bird in the world is a hummingbird. It's the bee hummingbird in Cuba. Um, the average hummingbird weighs the same as a, an American quarter, six grams. Uh, and the tiniest, the smallest, the bee hummingbird weighs less than a dime. Um, and they have among the highest metabolic rates of all vertebrates, all animals with a backbone. So they're using up energy very quickly and they're also very small, so they barely store any fat. And so I, I was interested in studying them because they're on this energetic fine line between life and death constantly. They don't have a backup source of energy in the form of fat, but they're also using up energy very quickly. So they have to eat very often in turn, you know, to match their energetic needs for uh, over an hour or two. Yeah, they have a kind of a just-in-time lifestyle, don't they? I, yeah, I, had, so. a, I, had, a, I had a hummingbird fly into my uh, studio and I didn't notice it, and it landed on a little string, and I uh, didn't see a way out, I guess, and uh, I think it died within a, an hour or two, and unfortunately, I didn't get to it, but uh, it was living living on the energetic edge, and I didn't have any flowers with nectar in them uh, close by, so, yeah. Yeah, especially if they're hovering and flying. Hovering is 10 times more expensive energetically than just sitting still and resting and so especially if it was trying to find a way out it was probably using up energy quite quickly yeah. yeah yeah so how often do they have to feed i don't know if there's a standard answer to that question i've said they probably feed every 15 20 minutes to an hour but then other hummingbird biologists have told me that i'm wrong and i don't study their feeding behavior so i i don't know actually i think i've read that yeah they start running it, it it's Species dependent, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, the ones that we have here, California, uh, they'll start running, running down after if they don't feed in a, every forty-five minutes. They they can that that much time is enough for them to start running out of energy. I think it and really I've depends them, because like, yeah, I've kept them in a cage sometimes for two hours and they're okay, but then other individuals are not. So I think it really depends on how much energy is stored in their crop and how much fat stores they have at that moment. And what they're doing. You you mentioned yeah. that 
flying is 10 times more energetic than resting. So if they're in a cage and just perched, they can live maybe 10 times longer than if they're... I know when they get caught, like in the garage or in the house, they fly around constantly trying to, to find the way out. And so that consumes resources at a pretty rapid rate. They do that in cages too, though. Um, if they, Especially if they can see the outside and if it's not a closed, like a darkened room or something with cloth over it. If they can see, then they're constantly trying to get out. So going back to, uh, I guess, uh, the distribution of these birds. Uh, so South America is kind of the epicenter of, uh, of there's what, more species there. Is that correct? Way more. So in, in total, there's about 330 something species of hummingbirds. And um, Colombia has the highest number. Ecuador is second highest. And I've spent a lot of time in Ecuador. So I know they have about 130, 53 species of hummingbirds. So they have almost half of all the hummingbird species just in this tiny little country of, of Ecuador. And there's only 16. 153 species? Yeah, just in Ecuador, yeah. Wow. So obscene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw a video of a, a, a feeder in uh, outside of Cuenca in Ecuador. And uh, somebody was holding up this feeder and it's just like... <laughs> About a dozen different kinds of hummingbirds just flying around. It was just yeah. totally mind-blowing. Some of my field sites had 23 species of them. Um, whereas in North America, there's a, in, in the U.S., there's a total of only 16. In the whole continent? In the whole country. I think there might be more in Mexico. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It, but that gets back to what you were saying earlier about the the radiation of, you know, the development of this diversity really happened in South America and then they kind of radiated out from there. So uh, do we know uh, how long ago they actually got into North America? I think the the fossil is about 20 million years old. Uh-huh. So the Pliocene, that's so about when I that. think the Andes started rising. Yeah. Interesting. And there's some groups still diversifying today. So the bee hummingbirds, their diversification rate is still increasing. And they're the, they're the smaller of the hummingbirds size-wise. But there's like tons and tons and tons of bee species. And very, many of them are very similar to each other. They haven't diverged very far yet. So they're on, they're on the way to greater diversity, right? Yeah. Because um, they kind of imagine the Andes popping up and then tremendous floral diversity and then the hummingbirds are still kind of catching up with that whole thing some of them yeah i mean there's some groups like there's the more the older groups of hummingbirds there's the jacobins there's only i think three species in that group hermits there's not as many species in that group and then there's there's like seven or nine oh god i should know this um different clades of hummingbirds so there's the hermits the jacobins the bees the mountain gems the what, giant hummingbird has its own clade that's the biggest hummingbird that's like 10 times the size of the smallest hummingbird um, yeah. and so all of these have slightly different diversification rates and are evolving at different paces but many of them have very few species and are kind of fixed they're not going to be that many more um, but the bees are one of the youngest clades and they are evolving and diversifying still pretty rapidly so for our viewers, uh, a, a clade in evolutionary terms is a group of species with a kind of an, a common genetic 
history that are kind of on the move uh, evolutionarily. Yeah, what used to be thought of as a branch on an evolutionary tree, but the tree metaphor doesn't really work very well anymore, yeah. right? So they're they're developing new species, and is that uh, following uh, diversification in the in the flowers and plants that they're feeding on, or some other factor? I don't know if we know that yet, because all of these bee hummingbirds have really short very small straight be bills, beaks compared to the other species. Like the hermits I mentioned earlier, they have really curved beaks. They have a very weird tail shape. They're very different from the other hummingbirds in their wing shapes and everything else. Um, these bee hummingbirds are just like tiny little, almost templates of each other with very small variations. And they all have very generic, short, straight bills, which means that they can feed on a lot of short, straight flowers um, that are not very different from each other. So I don't know if if the flowers are yeah um interesting so it's kind of yeah all right i get it so there's a there's they're diversifying because there isn't really a strong selection pressure to push them in any one direction right yeah i don't huh. know if it's because of elevation or temperature i mean these are big questions is it physiology is it the temperature regulation is it the environment is it the plants and resources? Is it competition with other hummingbirds? Um, I don't know if we, we know the answer for the bee, bee hummingbirds yet, what really is shaping their um, evolution and spread. But there are some hummingbirds that have very long beaks that seem to feed exclusively on certain kinds of flowers and they're specialists there and not other birds can get the nectar, but the I don't know, is there some pollination interaction there? For sure. Yeah, there was a, a lab mate of mine named Ben Weinstein who studied uh, just this kind of question in Ecuador. He, he put up cameras at plants at different elevations, and he was trying to see which hummingbirds visit which flowers. Um, and how does that change across the year? How does that change across elevation? And so what he was finding was that a lot of the hummingbird species, which have really generic short bills that can feed on a lot of straight flowers, um, they and the more specialist hummingbirds were all kind of doing the same and doing fine when there was an abundance of flowers because when there's a lot of flowers they usually tend to be short short corolla or the like petal, the petal part of the flower is straight and short um, but the specialist ones with the curved bills or the long bills have an advantage when there's very few flowers available because that those flowers tend to be curved and tend to be long. And so that specialization is an advantage when resources are low and being generic and a generalist is fine when there's a lot of resources available. Uh -huh. So there's definitely changes over the year and sometimes changes across elevation with things like this. Yeah, that's cool. How long do, do the individuals live? That's a very good question. Um, the average age, I think, is about seven years. And I think the longest wow. a hummingbird has been recorded to live is 12. That is way longer than I would have expected. It's way longer than you should have expected because this, for something this size, they should live between one and two years and nowhere near more. Um, but they live way longer than that. And I think part of it might have to do with their ability to get cold and save energy at night, which is what I study all the time now. But... Um, 
yeah, I, I think the, their ability to, to live that long is very unusual and not predicted for their body mass. So, so uh, maybe you could uh, tell our viewers a little bit about some of these relationships. Uh, I don't know if among birds or among uh, vertebrates generally that uh, we can kind of predict generally the, 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 how long things live based on body mass or other kinds of things. Yeah, this group of, of relationships, they called, they're called allometric relationships. And it's any, any particular feature of an organism, like its metabolism, its lifespan, its brain size. You can plot anything against the body size of that animal and see what kind of relationship those two variables have. And with, um, you know, people started getting in, interested in the study in the early 1800s when, um, for example, if a veterinarian wanted to dose a horse a particular medicine and they knew how much to dose a horse, they didn't know how much to dose a dog. They wanted to be able to predict what um, dosage to give an animal of a different size based on the dosage of an animal of another size. So allometric relationships can help you predict those kinds of things. So it can be useful in a very, very, you know, practical, functional way. But it's also interesting because biologists for a very long time have wondered if there's rules governing all of life. Like, is there something that decides what our energy expenditure should be based on our body size? Because it's clearly within some limits. It's not totally random. A mouse and an elephant have a very predictable relationship in their energy expenditure or their uh, anything else in relationship to body size. So, I know some people. Some people talk about you have so many heartbeats in a, in a lifetime. Yeah, I don't know if that's been debunked, but I think that concept makes sense. If you're a small animal, your your energy expenditure is much higher per unit body mass than a larger animal. So my favorite infographic has Matt Damon in it, and it's uh, like I made it. So <laughs> like an average human the size of Matt Damon, if they just had to eat potato chips all day, they would need a, about 15 potato chip packets to meet their daily energetic needs. Like just normal, you know, small Lay's potato chips. Whereas if they had the metabolic rate of an elephant, they would have to eat only four packets of potato chips. So their energy expenditure per unit mass decreases if they had the energy expenditure of a large animal. Whereas that same human, if they had the metabolic rate of, an, of a hummingbird, they would have to eat 600 packets of these chips a day <laughs> instead of 15. So that's that's a really like interesting way to think about allometry because the smaller you get, usually you use energy much faster per unit of your body's mass per gram or per kilogram. I, I just want to get it straight for the record. You're not you're not suggesting in our our uh, our our listeners that eat potato chips, right? No, because we actually need <laughs> vitamins and like micronutrients and all those other pesky things. Right, we can't just right, live on right. calories, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, okay. but if we did. But if we did, it would take 600 bags of <laughs> potato chips per day. 300 hamburgers, a fridge full of... There's so many analogies we can make. But yes, yeah, you yeah. would have to eat a whole bunch of food. <laughs> Point being that the metabolic rate of hummingbirds is extraordinarily high. Yeah. And, to go and back yet to, they live yeah, for exactly. 7 to 12 years. That's the remarkable thing. So you, uh, with these allometric relationships, going back to Bob was asking in what, what Bob was asking in the beginning is that for a big animal, you'd expect them to live really long. For a small animal, you'd expect them to live very short lives. 
um, allometrically. And hummingbirds live unusually long for their size, as do bats. Yeah. Does that does that apply to these little little bee-like hummingbirds too? I think for most species measured, they, the that we have banding data for, because that's how we know how long hummingbirds live. We put little metal bands on their legs, right, and then right. try to recapture them across years. And I think the average age we found from banding for most species is like six, seven. Mm -hmm. okay. That's remarkable. I mean, it, just going back to your analogy, if uh, if I ate six hundred bags of potato chips in a day, there's no way I'd last seven years. <laughs> and they drink sugar water. <laughs> right? Yeah, they had. Yeah, exactly. Um, You'd have a heart attack on November second. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, you know, that gets back to our earlier interview with Scott Widensall and talking about the physiological adaptations to migration. And uh, some birds do things that would be, you know, rapidly fatal in humans. They become morbidly obese twice a year uh, to fuel the migration. But you're, you're saying that hummingbirds actually can't do that. They don't store fat at all? They do for migration. They can double their body weight by putting on fat. So like the ruby-throated hummingbirds that we guest on, get on the East Coast, they have to cross the Gulf of Mexico in their migration boat. Often, I think we think in one shot without stopping to refuel because they, they can't in the middle of the ocean. Um, and they go from being three grams, which is like a dime and a half in weight, to being six grams, which is the weight of a quarter. So they double in their body mass um, to be able to fuel that migration. And so they're capable it just doesn't make sense on a daily basis because you want to be able to stay light and fly and being heavier will take more energy for hovering and take more energy for flying. Right, right, right. So do they go through the hyperphagia uh, just before that migration? Yeah, they eat a lot. Uh, they eat a lot even in the evenings in general. But before migration, their whole way of spending time and energy kind of shifts. Um, they use a lot of torpor at night, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, but um, they use this strategy to save energy at night to put on more body fat, and they also eat a lot to put on more body fat in preparation for migration. If you joined us late, listeners, we are speaking about hummingbirds this evening on the Ecology Hour with Dr. Anusha Shankar of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology uh, and She's a postdoctoral fellow there and specializing in research on hummingbirds and their energy requirements. So let's talk specifically about the, you mentioned torpor, which is one of the really fascinating things uh, about hummingbirds. Do you want to explain what that is and why they do it? I can't wait. Yes, I love torpor. It's just such an insane strategy. It's so fascinating. <laughs> it's like hibernation, but on a daily basis. Um, so you usually think of hibernating animals as like big black bears or maybe ground squirrels. And they can do it for many, many months in a year. Hummingbirds can use a version of that that's overnight. And so they get cold um, and they can save 60 to 90 percent of their energy for every hour that they use this strategy because they're not spending energy maintaining a high body temperature. And cold meaning for different species, the minimum temperature in topper is different, but the coldest known is like three degrees Celsius in a hummingbird in Peru, 
which is close to freezing. It's like 39 or something. I'm really bad at converting. I think it's 39 to 42 somewhere degrees Fahrenheit. So imagine if you wow. got that cold and what would happen is that all of your metabolic processes, your enzymes would start functioning more slowly, your proteins are functioning, everything kind of slows down. And so that saves a lot of energy. And That's then, amazing. and then how do they wake up? So they have to warm back up to normal body temperatures, which is at 41 degrees Celsius or like 103 something Fahrenheit. Um, and that takes like 20 to 30 minutes. They have to warm all the way back up. All of their functions return to normal. And then they go about their day as if nothing happened. It's insane. So there's <laughs> something in their brain like that produces these circadian rhythms, right? That puts them to sleep and wakes them up. That's a very prescient question. Um, I'm studying what genes are involved in regulating this ability to use torpor to get cold and warm back up, uh, because mm -hmm. we can't do that. There's many species that cannot do that. Um, and somehow they have the ability to, to do that safely and rewarm safely. So it does seem like keeping track of time is one of the few functions that uh, is kind of they spend more energy on when they're in topper. So even though they're de decreasing a lot of their genes functions, the circadian or clock functions are increasing. So there'll, there'll be some, uh, there'll be some genes that are active uh, during torpor and that might help you kind of put your finger on, if you look at the RNA, for instance, uh, during torpor, that might help put your finger on the genes that are involved in and you know, kind of that circadian rhythm, is that, am I thinking right about this? Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. We can look at how fat genes, metabolism genes, mitochondria stuff, um, timekeeping genes are all involved, how they change across these different states of high body temperature sleep, very low body temperature torpor, coming out of torpor, all these different states. Um, to see what, 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 you know, why I'm so fascinated by this is that they're functioning at like 10% of their normal metabolism. So something is keeping them alive. They're functioning at 10% of their normal rate. What is so important in, that it's in that 10%? What's keeping them alive when they're at that 10%? Yeah. That's what I really want to know. Interesting question. Yeah. What's and so funny? How on earth? Yeah. How on earth are you studying this? How do you, I mean, you can't just look at these things and tell what genes are active. How do you find that out? No, you have to take a tissue sample and then um, process it and basically extract RNA from it and then sequence the genes in that uh, fr from that RNA to look at and then match that to the genome and then look for which genes are increasing in number and which genes are decreasing in number across these different states. That sounds uh, amazing that you're doing that uh, kind of hour by hour. You're doing that overnight? At three different time points in a night. Yeah, it's tough to do every hour. That would mean a, a lot of birds, which we're trying to yeah. minimize. But uh, we have a few birds that are asleep at a high body temperature, a few birds that are in torpor, and a few that are transitioning between states. So you have to obtain a tissue sample from them while they're in those states. Uh, yeah. Wow. And then run the DNA analysis, and that tells you which genes are actually being uh, activated because you're seeing more of them show up. Exactly, yep. 
and the the clock genes or the timekeeping genes seem to be really big in and and increased in number when they're in torpor. Uh huh. Like keeping track of time is the most important thing, isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, interesting. It is, yeah. It, it seems like you would expect it would be, you know, keeping the oxygen levels right and things like that, right? The, the basic functions of life. We don't think of timekeeping as a basic function <laughs> of life, but I suppose it is, really. I mean, it runs all of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they're... When their internal clock then says it's time to wake up, how do they how do they warm up? They are clearly not just waiting for the sun to hit them and do the job. They they're warming themselves up. It's a little bit of a mystery with birds. Like with a with mammals, they have shivering thermogenesis, which means that they use shivering in their muscles to generate body heat. Birds don't seem to have shivering thermogenesis. They seem to have non-shivering thermogenesis. So we don't exactly know quite how that happens. I think it has something to do with mitochondrial proteins uncoupling and decoupling a certain way. But I don't understand any of that yet. And I don't yeah. know if anyone does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they just throw a switch and warm up. Right. And we don't really know what's going on. <laughs> wow. Visibly. Complex, complex biochemistry somewhere. Yeah. yeah, because if you're watching them, so how I, I, how I know what state they're in is that I use a thermal camera and I use a metabolic system to measure the air in their breath to see how much carbon dioxide they're, consu- they're producing or oxygen they're consuming so that we can tell how much energy they're spending by doing that. And we can look at their body temperature by using these thermal cameras. And so the only indication I have that a hummingbird is going to warm up from torpor is when it starts breathing differently. Because when they're in torpor, they breathe very rarely. And sometimes they breathe, breathe very sporadically. So they like don't breathe for 10 seconds, 15, 20, 30 seconds. And then suddenly they'll take a few deep breaths. And when they're going to warm up, I can tell their breathing is getting more regular. That's my first sign that they're going to start to warm up. It starts becoming more regular and starts becoming more frequent. But there isn't a shivering. Like their posture is the same. They just start breathing differently. Hmm. So you keep tra- okay. track also with the infrared camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They start to warm up again. Yeah. And it takes them 20 or 30 minutes yep. is all to well, there's get some right back to it. weirdo individuals that took like 90 minutes, but yeah, on average, it's it's 20, 30 minutes. Huh. And what species are you studying? Are you studying the ruby throat? I'm studying Anna's hummingbirds in Oregon. Um, that's what I'm okay. working on right now. But for my PhD, I studied like, I don't know, 12, 13 different species in Ecuador and a few different ones uh-huh. in Arizona. All right, all right. So yeah, the Anas are the ones that we have uh, we have here in Northern California resident, but I think there's also a still a migratory population as well. Do you know anything about that? The the sort of recent history of Anas hummingbirds. I gather that they originally were all migratory, and now there's a non-migratory population. Yeah, that's that's correct. I think over the last twenty years. Um, they've been expanding northwards. And so there's some individuals that are living further and further north than they used to. And many of those are now resident as well. So there is still, I think, a migratory subpopulation of Anna's hummingbirds and then a migratory population that still continues to migrate. Um, And so they breed in the winter and they breed in Washington and Oregon, for example. (laughs) 
in the winter and then they molt in the summer and stop their their mating calls and things like that and then go through it all again uh, and so my collaborator in Oregon has had hummingbirds come to his feeder in the snow and they're able to live at very cold temperatures now and I, we think it's partly because like the community not me thinks that it's partly because of warming temperatures further north and partly because they have access year-round to feeders when they didn't used to 20 years ago so yeah just, that's i've read that that uh hypothesis that they're they stopped migrating uh, around the same time that a lot of residential development started popping up in uh, in the northern california oregon and washington and and planting landscape plants that flower all year long and putting out hummingbird feeders mm -hmm. but i don't uh, what i read uh, suggested that nobody really knew if that was the what that triggered it or not that's just a convenient explana explanation. It is, yeah. Humans are limited beings. <laughs> we can't know exactly why they're doing what they're doing, but we make all these correlations. So the, do they do they have uh, unusual ability to insulate their body uh, more than other birds? If you're if you're finding hummingbirds in the snow. <laughs> uh, I don't think oh, so. Oh yeah, think... are they are they storing heat or are they just making more of it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we know. That would be a good thing to look at. I hadn't even thought about that. I I mean, the smaller you get again this with this allometric business, the smaller you get the higher your surface area to volume ratio is, which means that right. you lose heat faster and you have to keep generating more to maintain a constant body temperature. So, Anna's hummingbirds are like 5-6 grams for like an average hummingbird five grams really and they lose heat pretty quickly i can't i don't know if anyone has looked at it would be a very good idea to look at feather density across the latitudes for like from southern california up to washington or sometimes even southern canada it would be cool to see whether that's changing yeah do they have any difficulty uh getting rid of heat they don't have an overheating problem Hummingbirds in general? Yeah. They can. Cause I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because they do live in the deserts of Arizona and it can get like 50 Celsius, which is some obscene 110 plus degree Fahrenheit kind of temperature. Yeah. My um, collaborator in Oregon, Don Powers, is studying um, heat dissipation in hummingbirds because there's some, you know, we lose heat usually by sweating or by passively losing heat because there's a gradient in temperatures between our body and the outside. And for us to lose heat, the outside has to be cooler than we are, right? But in Arizona, if the if the temperatures are going up to 50 degrees Celsius and their body temperature is at 40 degrees Celsius, 41 degrees Celsius, they're going to take on even more heat in this hot temperature, which is very bad. So he's trying to study, do they like choose to you know hide in, in shaded places? Do they just stop being active when it's so hot? Do they feed more to get more water? Because water loss also becomes a problem if you lose too much water then you're going to get dehydrated and you're going to get overheated so um it seems like it depends on the species like if you're a bigger hummingbird species in arizona then you can afford to just spend more time in the shade because you have all this stored crop energy sugar energy in your in your body um, but if you're a smaller hummingbird they can't really afford to stop feeding and so they just keep feeding even when it's hot but they also lose heat faster um, yeah, it's a complicated thing it's really hard to figure out how exactly they're losing heat 
when it's very hard. Mm. Yeah. If you've just joined us, uh, we're interviewing uh, Dr. Anusha Shankar from the Cornell Ornithological Lab. And uh, we're talking about hummingbirds and hummingbird metabolism right now. Fascinating animals. Um, we have we've been talking about Anna's hummingbirds. We have other species in this area. We've got Allen's hummingbirds and um, uh, Tim, you're the you're the bird guy. What other species do we have? Uh, uh, well, here on the coast, we also have uh, on migration. We get rufous hummingbirds, but they don't stay. They they might they nest farther north, and then they migrate back through in the fall and and winter further south than here. Uh, and then inland, they also will get a few calliope hummingbirds. Same thing. They're they're on their way to and from breeding and wintering grounds, and then occasionally a black-chinned hummingbird, which is more of a desert hummingbird. Right. Those are the only ones that we regularly get here. Yeah. The, the big three are the Annas that are here all the time, uh, the Allens that breed here in sometimes fairly large numbers, and then the Rufus that are moving back and forth. Right. So these annas, you're studying them in Oregon, mm -hmm. and you're are you you're studying the uh, presumably the residential population up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't seem to migrate, as far as we know. Yeah, and they and they only really started doing that just a few decades ago. Yeah, twenty years I think is what I I just read a paper by someone else who's at the lab of ornithology, published on this a few years on, in twenty seventeen. They had data from. Um, yeah, the past two decades, and they showed a map where it was all California earlier, and now it's all the way up to southern Canada, yeah. Do you have any idea of population size? You know, we're dealing with millions or thousands, hundreds of thousands. The Anna's hummingbird seems to be increasing according to the IUCN, uh, IUCN's latest data set, and they, they seem to be, they have an estimate of like 90, wait, Nine nine million individuals for Anna's hummingbirds. Mm. So they're increasing in geographic range and they're increasing in, in population size. Yeah, that species. Yeah. Yeah, so they're maybe benefiting from a lot of the changes, both landscape level changes and maybe even the climate change. It's giving them access to a larger geographic range. And do we have any similar data for Allen's hummingbirds? I don't know offhand, but I can check. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're hard to tell apart, as I understand. I'm looking at my hummingbird book, uh, they're very similar looking. Species. Well, the Allen's and the Rufus are really similar looking, yeah. Is it the Allen's and Rufus? Yeah. Yeah, they're really, really similar. The, the females and juveniles are essentially indistinguishable in the field. Males, you can tell apart. Yeah. Uh, the Annas you can distinguish because they're uh, they don't have any orange on them like the the Rufus, ah, the Allens okay. and Rufus do, right. and uh, and they have a dark gray chest as opposed to a clear white chest like the other two. I just checked Allens and it looks like they're also increasing in population size and they're at about 1.5 million is the estimate on AUCN right now. Huh? I think I have about two thirds of that in my <laughs> right here in my hedge. 
330,000. <laughs> well, we, we've, we've planted a bunch of these Australian uh, flowering shrubs, the hmm. grevillea, and they flower year-round. Hmm. Uh, and they produce, evidently, a tremendous amount of nectar because the hummingbirds and the bees are just all over them all the time. And who feeds the, and them in Australia? Bees? Presumably. Hmm. Yeah. Not hummingbirds. <laughs> but they got these tubular red flowers, and boy, anything that's red and tubular draws the attention of a hummingbird. Yes, it does. I read a hilarious account of... Uh, a, a guy asked the question, how does an Anna's hummingbird get through the winter up here in Northern California? And the answer was by investigating absolutely everything that looks like it might be a food source. <laughs> yeah. So... He watched one go down the eaves of a house at, at Christmas time, and the house had Christmas tree lights strung along the eaves, and this hummingbird went up to each and every bulb and checked to see if there was any nectar in it. You never know. Because it looked like a flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Just from one to the next, bing, 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 bing. Now, that, that brings me, though, to another question I wanted to ask while we still have time is um, their food... Uh, their food requirements is not just nectar. People, that's what we always focus on and think about because of the, the feeders and the flowers. But in fact, they're feeding on a lot of things that we don't necessarily notice, right? Insects. Yeah, I was wondering that when you mentioned the lights because the eaves of a house seemed like a great place for insects to be. And I wonder if they were also looking for insects at the same time because they, they can be very small. And you can't, sometimes like I see them poking around in some coniferous tree and it doesn't seem like there's anything for them to eat there but it's probably some little flies or spiders or, or tiny little uh, insects that i can't see easily from a distance yeah they eat a lot of insects that's where they get all their protein right yeah and especially if they have to bring up their young their young can't grow if they just have sugar all day so um they seem to the females seem to feed on insects a lot especially when they're breeding uh-huh and you see them doing that, I think uh, there's a behavior that at first I didn't understand where they're they're just sort of darting around in the air. And you're like, what is up with that? And if the light is just right, you can see there are these tiny little flying insects and they're catching them in flight. Gnat catching. Mm -hmm. And then I think they eat a lot of those tiny spiders. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that if you just took away everything on the surface of the earth except the spiders, you'd still have a pretty good map of the surface of the earth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because there are so many of these tiny little almost microscopic spiders say that we don't same, even notice. Say the same for nematodes. Yeah. Beetles. <laughs> Round, yeah. Roundworms. Yeah. Took yeah. everything away in the world but roundworms, you could still see the earth. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you did mention... Uh, uh, about feeding the young, so that maybe brings up the subject of reproduction. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, if you know about the reproduction cycle and and uh, kind of the brood sizes and all that sort of thing for anis hummingbirds. Um, what are do we have resident populations of breeders here? Um, yeah, and talk about that winter breeding thing because that's really unusual for birds. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we know all that much about the winter winter breeding up north, but um, in general, for breeding in hummingbirds, the females are the only ones that incubate and take care of the nestlings um, and the nest. So the males 
my main job is to flashy convince the females to mate with him and then that's it um his task is done and then the females lay the eggs take care of the chicks and then they fledge and then they leave the nest and they're very solitary creatures in general um so the females don't seem to use uh torpor when they're on their nest because they seem to prioritize keeping their chicks warm um and i think it takes somewhere between 12 and 15 days once the eggs have hatched for them to leave the nest um yeah what else so it's about 2 weeks of incubation probably and 2 weeks of feeding chicks and then that's it something like that so, so they're able to take uh nectar out of flowers and insects off various plants and then feed the young do they feed the young nectar or do we know I think also I think they they must regurgitate some I don't know if so they're getting know. a mix of insects and nectar together yummy sounds nutritious yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh and then do they do multiple broods oh yeah so um they have on average lay one or two eggs that's true of most of the hummingbird species that I know of and um they do sometimes do two broods in a season uh-huh Yeah. I don't know about the the South American ones. I don't know if we know if their breeding season is very distinct or if it's like just spread out all the time in general. Yeah, it's called much double, of a season. That's called there. double clutching, right? If they have two multiple two yeah. Broods. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I had a pickup truck one time. I had a double clutch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different So up there where you're studying them in Oregon they're they're breeding like in January February or what yes, time of year do you, do you see this I don't I'm not there in January February <laughs> but I think I Don is is going to look at that across the across the year and see what they're doing I don't think we have all that much like published there's no published data on that yet um that I know of at, at least in Oregon This is cutting edge research we're talking about here <laughs> I I just asked because I I read somewhere I don't know if it's true but I read uh somewhere that in the Bay Area of California, San Francisco Bay Area, Anna's hummingbirds have been recorded breeding in every month of the year. Oh. Not every year obviously, but but somewhere some somebody has recorded a nesting activity hmm. in each month in the Bay Area, which is is kind of remarkable really. It, yeah. But it makes a little bit of sense to me after hearing their evolutionary history if they originated as a tropical animal that wasn't really tied to seasonality then maybe this is a little bit of a throwback to that and they found a way to get through the year without relying too much on seasonal development. Yeah, you, know, you get up mm-hmm. you get up in 5 or 6000 feet in the Andes and it's a uh, very little variation seasonally i mean it's like 70 degrees every day and it's pretty sweet hmm. well i think we are getting pretty close to the end of our interview here we have a few minutes left and uh so i would just like to ask dr shankar if there are some resources you want to direct people to or if there are, if you wanted to just talk a little bit about the specific things that you hope to find out about hummingbirds uh in your research um 
<laughs> I, I, the next, like, I want to study heterothermy in general. Heterothermy is this ability to be different body temperatures. Um, and we don't know too much about it in the tropics. So I'd love to study animals that are able to change their body temperatures in India and in Ecuador and in, in more tropical places to get broader data coverage. Um, we only know about torpor in less than 1% of all bird species, and there's over 10,000 bird species. So there's very little we know about torpor across birds. Um, and I think it would be really cool to, to get more data from the tropics, train people in the tropics to, be, tropics to be able to collect these data and to get global kind of patterns of heterothermy in birds. Resources, I think there's just a lot of citizen science kind of um, projects that it would be really nice for people to get involved in for, for their own sakes and for those citizen science projects sakes. I don't have anything of my own to plug. You can visit my website if you want to read more about what I do, but it's not that exciting um, <laughs> beyond what I've told you. Um, I think there's just like uh, apps like eBird um, where you can enter your bird sightings. There's apps like Merlin, uh, both of which are made by the Lab of Ornithology, but you can learn how to identify birds by using that app. There's so many others if you look for um, citizen science projects. You can like outline the skull of a bird and help people digitize skull collections uh, or count hmm. penguins in Antarctica or, you know, all, there's so many projects that are, that are really cool ways to be involved with science. I would like to put a quick plug in for uh, Richard Attenborough's. Uh, he's got one in his series on hummingbirds and it's a... Uh, amazing and the photography is just mind-blowing uh of course attenborough is just the best mm -hmm. as far as nature programs are concerned and, uh, and it's available on netflix so <laughs> well very good thank you very much dr shankar uh we will put some links up on our website uh both to your research uh uninteresting though you may think it <laughs> it's not uninteresting it just sounds like everything i already told you <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I do too. It, it brings up all these really detailed technical questions, and then they, it, so many of them aren't answered yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which means you've got plenty of work ahead of you. So much. So we'll put some links up on our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com, and we'll look forward to maybe talking to you again in the future and see what else you've learned. That'd be good. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating interview. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Shankar. That wraps it up for our program this evening. Uh, we have a, little, a short segment here by Hannah Bird uh, that she didn't wasn't able to run in her program last week, and so we will go over to that right now. So I would like to welcome Linda McElway. joins us today as the Watershed Coordinator for the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District and the Navarro River Resource Center. And Linda, I know you have something rather exciting coming up to tell us about. Thank you, Hannah. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you um, featuring this exciting event that we have coming up. 
So this is happening uh, Saturday, October 15th. So just a week from Saturday from 8.30 to 4.30 p.m. at the Anderson Valley Grange. The sponsor who, the, the brainchild of the Anderson Valley Land Trust, this, this event is that there's co-sponsors with the Navarro River Resource Center and the Anderson Valley Wine Growers Association. So we've been working on planning for this event since, you know, March, February, March. Um, and um, just to give a really quick general uh, overview of the program, uh, basically we're going to be um, in the morning, we'll be going over the state of the Anderson Valley, uh, the resources and land use practices past and present. Um, at lunch, there'll be a round robin discussion about who is doing what. And so there'll be, you know, there's about, um, the event is actually sold out at this point, but it will be streaming and oh, uh, live and there'll be a recording afterwards. So we really encourage people to continue to sign up for the, uh, the Zoom or the, the streaming. And, and participate. Um, and then in the afternoon, we'll be talking about what, what we can't, what can we do individually and together, both present and future. Amazing. One of the things I noticed on the poster was just this, um, underneath your title, just this think like a watershed. And I, I love this idea. I, could you expand on that a little bit for us? Why is it important for us to think like a watershed? Well, um, basically, we have to give credit to Brock Dolman, uh, our, our word master and general uh, watershed enthusiast and, and, and instigator uh, to think like a watershed. And so we we uh, captured that tagline from Brock, who is going to be one of our keynote speakers. We've got like a, a, a Brock um, bookend. So he's going to be part of our keynote in the morning and uh, part of the close in the afternoon, which is completely appropriate to have him. Uh, we're really excited to have him part of this program. But thinking like a watershed, uh, from what I've learned and heard from Brock over the years, is um, it's like thinking like it's like a lifeboat, basically, if we think on a watershed terms that and in the Navarro, it's a perfect way to um, to do that. We have it is the largest contiguous uh, watershed within the boundaries of Mendocino County. And so um, the uh, watershed basically is from uh, the ridge lines down to the valley that form the, all the tributaries and rivulets and springs that feed into feed the Navarro and become the Navarro River, which um, feeds into the, the Pacific Ocean. Um, so by looking at a watershed from ridge to river and all of that encompasses, just by living in the watershed here, we are all connected uh, mm -hmm. to one another. And all of the land uses and the practices and all of the activities that we do um, affect people upstream as well as downstream for the overall health. So so recognizing that obviously we're all impacting and uh, supported by our watersheds, um, who will gain value from attending your event? Like, as you said, it's live streaming, so they could attend online. I'm sure everybody could get some value from it, but who do you think are you particularly excited about getting to your event? Well, really, we want primarily we wanted community members to come because this is a community uh, Anderson Valley and, and Navarro watershed conversation. That's the basis of a lot of the information that we're really focused on is all uh, primarily focused on the Navarro. But a lot of it is transferable and relatable to uh, communities throughout the North Coast and, and pretty much anywhere. So um, I think that there's be something relevant here and, and and just alone thinking like a watershed. 
Um, so, of course, private and public landowners, land conservation and restoration organizations and individuals will be part of the presenters, but also participants. Um, we have some uh, residents that are interested in land stewardship, climate change, fire, recreation, the beauty of our wild and rural landscapes, open space, clean air and clean water, uh, vineyard owners and managers. Uh, we've got forest owners and managers, ranch and farm owners and managers, and the public land managers. So these are, that's the primary makeup of who uh, owns and manages land in the Navarro watershed. Yeah, no, that's amazing. No, it really does touch everybody, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's such an exciting opportunity and discussion to be having. And it sounds like you've got some fantastic speakers. Um, it's clear to me that you probably have, as you said, you've been planning this for a long time. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people involved in the planning and supporting the event. Um, who is it who's come together to put this on? Well, the Anderson Valley Land Trust uh, has a board of, I think, about seven or eight directors. And um, at least five of them, or four or five of them, have been the primary um, movers and shakers on helping to pull together on this event. Uh, myself, we've been on, you know, weekly calls, literally, I think since February, March, pretty early on, considering it's now happening next week is pretty amazing. Um, and uh, Jocelyn uh, from has been participating from the Anderson Valley Wine Growers. And um, th that's been really important to have all three organizations sort of giving input and brainstorming, how do we even form the, the agenda, reaching out to our presenters. We've ended up with a great list of, um, of presenters that are coming throughout the region and um, to to join us. It's it's really, um, really getting exciting now that it's happening just a week from Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Linda, just to finish up, I really want to just make sure that folks who are listening to this know how they can be involved. So you said it's sold out. But how would they go about joining your live stream and being involved? Okay, so if you go to AndersonValleyLandTrust.org, there is a drop down for this event, and you can register through that through the website. It will take you to an Eventbrite page, and um, there's a waiting list for in person. And I'm sure there'll be tickets that will probably become available as people realize they may have conflicts or can't make it. Um, and then otherwise, there's the Zoom option as well. And um, we will be posting after the event, the uh, uh, the recording of the event. But really, I want to encourage people from all over Mendocino County to join this conversation because, you know, or listen in, whatever you have time for um, to, to, you know, glean and uh, add your voice to the conversation. Uh, there will be room for that. And I just... Um, I do want to say our keynotes, and also we have Obi, Obi Kaufman who's coming, who's a conservationist, uh, and he's a conservationist, author, and artist, and we're really excited to have Obi Kaufman, and um, we have Ron Lincoln, senior, who's coming from the Round Valley Pomo to do an invocation, and we just, Kareen Pierce will be there, and we have uh, varying levels of experts and just people, farmers, and uh people that are working the land. Uh, so there's a whole range of uh, voices that will be heard and uh, shared, hopefully from the, the community as well to participate in this conversation. Well, Linda, it sounds fantastic. Thank you for putting it on. And we will look forward to talking with you after the event to hear how it all went. Thanks for joining us on the Ecology Hour. Thank you.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.